Hey, this is Kevin Weatherby at Save the Cowboy. I want you to tow that stirrup, throw a leg over the candle, take a deep seat, and pull your hat down tight. I ain't gonna tolerate no whining or griping, so let's all strike a long trot down that narrow trail and learn how to ride with God. Come on! What you waiting on? Let's go. Years ago, whenever I was working on the Rocker B Ranch, we were, it was during shipping season, and we were uh, gathering a pasture called the North Mustang. Now, do not ask me why it wasn't the North Mustang. I don't know. The ranch manager, the cow boss, the wagon boss, everybody called it the North Mustang. So that's the way I called it, North Mustang. And it was one of the first times that I was gathering cattle as a paid employee of the Rocker B Ranch. Not, you know, because I had I'd helped them gather oh, a lot. But I was just like Paul's son that was out there helping because I didn't have school that day. You know what I mean? So this was one of the first times that I was gathering. I was a paid employee of the ranch. My dad wants me to do good. I want to do good, blah, blah, blah. So we're going to the North Mustang pasture, and I've never been in this pasture horseback. I mean, this, this ranch is 176,000 acres, okay? And so there's lots of pastures that I hadn't been in horseback. And so we, on the way over, Dad's kind of giving me the layout, and he's reminding me of all this stuff. Because, you know, when, when your son is working for a place, you want to succeed. You want him to succeed. You want everybody to be happy, blah, blah, blah. So he's, you know, he's telling me, man, just stay with your flanker. Stay with your flanker. Whoever you're flanking, stay with them. Stay with them. I was like, okay, Dad, I got it. So that morning we get up, or we get to the pasture, and one of my favorite times is when all the trucks and trailers pull in, and everybody's drinking a cup of coffee. And you, it, it doesn't matter if you just saw them last night. You reach over, you shake their hand, and you tell them good morning. Each and every person, it's one of my favorite parts of Cowboy, and is early in the morning, shaking everybody's hand, telling everybody good morning. So we all saddled up, and we got in a jig line, which is just a line of cowboys with the wagon boss was uh, going to drop all of us off. And so whenever we started going, he dropped Ronnie off first, and then he dropped my dad off. And, you know, you're trotting down this fence line, and he'll just say, Ronnie. And Ronnie stopped, and we all keep going, and he says, Paul. Dad stopped, and we keep going. And then he says, Kevin. So I know I'm flanking my dad, right? So anyway, but Jesse doesn't keep riding this time. He wheels up because he knows it's the first time I've been in this pasture, right? So he says, Kevin, listen, let let me tell you what's going to go on here. He didn't have to do this, but I very much appreciated it. He said, you're going to basically go straight, but you're going to be watching for Lance and your dad, you know, back and forth. And you're going to get to this hill overlooking this draw that, that, you and your dad and Ronnie are going to be gathering, and y'all are going to come around this way, and then when you're at the tip of this little, it's not really the mountain, it's just the top of the draw going down, he said, you'll be able to see the windmill that we're going to. Okay, do that. So anyway, they went on, and he dropped Lance and everybody else off, and they go, and I'm just sitting there. You can hear some coyotes yipping. It's a beautiful fall morning. It's actually warm, and um, see the birds going from mesquite tree to mesquite tree, and hear all the noises and the I mean, the sun's not even over the horizon yet, but it's starting to get there. It's just a, it's one of my favorite deals. And you know what? Most of you will never experience this. And, and for this, I'm sorry. Okay, I really am. But one of my other favorite things is to hear the drive start. Because whoever is the last to get to their spot, when they're ready to go, they yell. Because you can't see because there's so much mesquite. And then the next guy. And it kind of tells you how far these people are away from you. And it goes all the way down until it's Ronnie, the very first guy. And once everybody is hollered, we start the drive. We start going. And sure enough, man, everything happens just like Jesse said it would. I got my dad on this side. I got Lance on this side. I'm 
kind of going back and forth, but staying in my area. And I sure enough, I get to the edge of this deal. I can overlook this big draw. Uh oh. <laughs> His dad was right here. Now he's about a mile and a half <laughs> over there, and I'm supposed to be next to him. Oops. But over here, just like Jesse said, I could see the windmill. And I knew how many head of cattle were in this, and I could also see Jim Ed, the cow boss, is in his truck with the cake feeder on it, and he's got his siren going because all the cattle are, are, are broke to cake and siren because it's so brushy down there. It's the only way to kind of get them all together if you want to look at them because the, the place is so big. I mean, this one pasture was probably seven square miles that, you know, seven of us are trying to gather and brush everywhere. I get to the edge, and I can see Dad like a mile or a mile and a half over there, and I know I'm supposed to be over there helping him and Ronnie because I can barely see Ronnie way out there. There's a lot of country between me and my dad, but I can see the windmill about a mile over there, and I can see the cattle. We're already at the windmill, and they're starting to drift back to where we had already gathered. So I have a dilemma. I have a dilemma. Do I go to where I'm supposed to be, or do I go over there and keep those cattle from going where they're not supposed to be? Well, sometimes you're faced with the dilemma. Do you do the right thing or what you're told to do? And that's where we're going to start today, is if you want to get the most out of life, you need to do what is right no matter what. No matter what. There is two women in the Bible, and I'm willing to bet that if this was a trivial pursuit game, most of us would fail it when I ask you. That's the pig. And Moana is my favorite cartoon of all times, right? So this is Shipra and her pig, Pua, right? I think, I think that's the way it goes. No, 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 not, not actually. Shipra and Pua lived in Egypt. They were Hebrew, and they were the midwives to the Hebrew people. Shipra and Pua are midwives for the Hebrew people who are slaves in Egypt. And the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at this point, Pharaoh, calls Shipra and Pua into his office and says, got a deal for you. They're like, okay, sir. He said, when you go to give help these uh, Hebrew women give birth, as you're giving birth, if it is a boy, kill the baby. If it's a girl, leave it alone. Well, they leave the meeting and they know instantly they ain't doing that because that ain't what God would want. So they don't do it. So later on, there's all these little boy Hebrews running around everything. So Pharaoh calls them back in. He's like, listen, Shipra, listen, Pua, you ain't really kind of doing your job because I told you to kill every Hebrew baby boy. And there's a bunch of babies out there. And they said, listen, Pharaoh, you don't understand, man. These Hebrew ladies, man, they're easier calvers than y'all. By the time we get there, they've already given birth. What are we supposed to do? Because, you know, they're supposed to be like undercover about it. Like, oh, I'm sorry, your baby died, you know, at childbirth, right? They're supposed to kill it right then. Then they don't. And they're like, hey, man, these ladies are easy calvers, man. We can't even get there before the baby's already there. And Pharaoh's like, oh, okay, I can, I can kind of see that. Because Pharaoh wanted to control the population because the Hebrews were getting too many and they were scared that if they revolted, Egypt wouldn't be able to do anything. Yeah, yeah, they lied to Pharaoh. But I wonder how many countless lies they say, in going against the wishes of the most powerful man on earth at the time. Think about that. I mean, they basically just told somebody that could end their life like that, we're not doing that, and we'll suffer the consequences for it. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, the Bible tells us, so God was good to the midwives 
And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. He rewarded them for their faithfulness because you know what? God knew he was going to rescue those Hebrew people, the Israelites. He knew he was going to rescue them. And he knew that they had to be this big to go back and, and take over the promised land and all of this stuff. So God, you know, I, I'm sure that the Israelites felt like God had abandoned them, but he was preparing them for something great. And these two obscure women, Chipra and Pua, have made it into the greatest book ever written. A book written by God Himself through man. There they are. Because they were willing to do the right thing no matter what. If you want to do the right thing no matter what, there's a couple of things that you need to remember. The first is, the right thing has to be God's thing, not your thing. And I, and I know that that sounds kind of obvious, but I think that a lot of times we think, Oh, this is the right thing, so it must be God's right thing. No, it needs to be God's thing that you do right every time. Okay? It needs to be God's thing, especially the things of God. You know, don't, he don't like his murdering kids. Duh. Do the right thing, no matter what. The second thing you have to remember is the right thing often has scary consequences. When you do the right thing, you are probably going to have to realize that by doing this right thing, I may be opening myself to some scary consequences. So be it. The midwives did. And God was so proud of them, He ended up rewarding them with their own families. Which sounds just somewhat a little strange to me that these midwives had never given birth themselves, but they were helping others do it. But whatever, God was with them, right? You want to do the right thing no matter what, be sure it's God's right thing that you're doing. And understand that the right thing often has scary consequences. And you know what? You might even suffer for doing the right thing. You might even suffer for doing the right thing. But suffering for doing right is a lot better than regretting doing wrong. Because you know what? I think we've all been there at some point in our lives when, when we knew the right thing to do and we didn't really do that, and it bothered us. It didn't just bother us that day. It bothered us the next day and the next day. And every time we think back to that, it still bothers us. And sometimes I wonder if the scary immediate consequences aren't less than the consequences of not doing the right thing and suffering with it and second-guessing yourself the rest of your life. Learn to do the right thing no matter what. If you want to get the most out of life, do the right thing no matter what. Do the right thing no matter what. You ever heard of Eliab? 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 El I don't know how to say his name. It's E-L-I-A-B. They just, like, they pick numbers out of the alphabet soup and just, like, mash them together to come up with a name. There's a guy named Eliab. Let me tell you a little bit about Eliab, just so you know. Eliab had these beautiful hair, right? It was probably not golden, but I picture it like Thor, right? Off the Marvel comics. He's just this big, beefy guy, chiseled face, got the rock-hard, manly jaw, right? He's got biceps out to here, thighs out to here. And when he walks down the street, all the girls, ooh, you know, this is Eliab, right? I mean, this dude is like the envy of every other dude in the world. They're like, man, I wish I looked like old Eliab. This is Eliab. He looked, I mean, looked a lot like Grady, right? <laughs> you know, I was going to say that. <laughs> Grady's the guy I worked out with. So anyway, he's a beautiful man. He was the oldest of a big family. I mean, first in line, man, that was a big deal. That was a big deal in Old Testament times when you were the first, right? The firstborn. This is Eliab. He's big, he's strong, he's tall, he's good looking. He's the firstborn. And guess what? 
a prophet of God is going to be coming by his house that day. I mean, he put some Formula V05 in them long, luscious locks, right? Maybe put a little baby oil on them guns. He's looking the part. Because what this prophet of God is coming to do is this prophet was told by God to go to this specific house and anoint the next king of Israel. Because you might not know who Eliab is, but you know who Eliab's youngest brother is. A man named David. Eliab was David's oldest brother. Something big is going to happen today. A prophet is going to come. And something does, something big does happen that day. Because the prophet Samuel doesn't choose the big, strapping, long, luscious, locked, great, big, strong guy. He chooses the runt down there at the bottom. The very least of the household is who God anoints to be the next king of Israel. And the reason Samuel chooses David is because when Samuel walks up to see all these boys that he's supposed to choose from, this is what God tells him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. If you want to get the most out of life, you're going to have to understand that what's inside here matters a lot more than what everybody sees. It's the little things. It's the faith. It's the courage. It's those things that can't necessarily be quantified that God is going to use. What matters the most to God is what's on the inside. Don't strive for a beautiful face that will one day get old. Instead, strive for a beautiful attitude that can flower and grow the rest of your life. We put so much thought onto outward appearance, but where our true beauty comes from, the beauty that God sees, the beauty that God wants, isn't here that you can see. It comes from in here. It comes from who you are. Because God doesn't care if you have rock-hard abs. He cares if you have a rock-hard faith, right? I mean, it helps if you do. It's cool. But God don't care about that. I, I like flexed my abs when I did that. Y'all couldn't see that, but I did. And God doesn't care how many people love you, how many people think that you're wonderful. God cares about how you love Him and how you love everyone else, not how much everybody else loves you. We put so much work into what people see and what people hear, but man, the beautiful part about us, if you want to get the most out of life, is you have to get it through your head right now that it's the stuff on the inside that matters, not the outside. Not the outside. Because the truth of who we are usually comes to the surface. Because that's what happened with Eliab. That's what happened with Eliab. Because in second or First Samuel chapter 17, verse 28. So Samuel chose David to be the next king of Israel, but yet Israel still has a king. His name is Saul, but he did some stuff that God didn't like, so God has turned his back on him. Now the Philistine army is lined up on one side of the valley of Elah, and the Hebrew, the Israelite army, is lined up on the other side. And the Philistine champion is a man named Goliath. And he has walked out and said, you know what? Our armies are not going to fight. He said, send out your best to fight me and whoever wins, wins this war. Nobody from Israel would go out there. Nobody from Israel would go out there. And that's when we see that David's father had said, your, your brothers are on the front lines with the Philistine army. You need to take them this bread and beef and Whataburger, right? And so David goes to take food to his brothers. And when Eliab sees him, this is what happens in 1 Samuel 17, verse 28. But when David's older brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, 
He was angry. See what I mean? Bubbles to the surface. When Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just wanted to see the battle. Ooh, man. What's inside usually comes to the surface. But God told Samuel, don't look at his outward appearance. I look at what's on the inside, not the outside. I mean, David is just there to deliver food at his father's behest, right? And what Eliab was describing was not David's pride and deceit, but Eliab's own. Because usually the things that we find fault in others, we usually have those same faults. And we don't like them about ourselves, but it's easier to point out somebody else's faults than our own. And David wasn't there to see the battle, right? David was there to take food to his brother. But just because David wasn't there for the battle, unbeknownst to David and everybody else except God, he was there to fight the battle, not just watch. He was there to fight it. David never tried to be anybody but himself. When he heard Goliath walk out and basically call the Israelites a bunch of pansies, sissies, and nobody would do anything about it, (laughs) David said, let me go out there. I'll kill that uncircumcised Philistine and show him who my God is. So they, so they tried to put armor on David. David's like, take that stuff off me. I cannot. I can't even move with that. So he walks out there. He's like, come here, big dude. He's like, I fought lions and tigers and bears. You ain't nothing, dude. And Goliath laughed at him. That was the last thing Goliath did. David done smoked him, right? What happened? Because God cares about what's on the inside, the faith the trust, the hope. If you want to get the most out of life, it's the inside that will make the biggest difference. Not the outside. It's the inside. If you want to get the most out of life, do the right thing. When it comes to God things, do the right things if you want to get the most out of life. And finally, there's a fella named Shamgar. Okay, Not to be confused with Shamwow. Shamgar invented Shamwow. Okay, it's not in the Bible, but that's Jewish tradition. I'm lying. It's just a joke. Shamgar did not invent Shamwow. He just did the commercials for them. It's getting a little tense in here. In Judges chapter 3, verse 31, Shamgar is listed one time in the Bible. One verse in the Bible. One supposedly insignificant verse is where Shamgar makes his appearance. And this is what it says. After Ehud, listen. If you want to get the most out of life, do not name your kids Ehud, okay? It's not going to work out well for them. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, A-N-A-T-H, do not name your kids Anath either, okay? It's not going to get the most out of their lives. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, rescued Israel. I mean, if we're going to talk about one verse, man, that's a lot packed into there, huh? Just one man rescued Israel. But how? He once killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Here's this one man, and in one verse of the entire Holy Bible, it says that Shamgar rescued Israel. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. What is an ox goad? Okay? It is basically a cattle prod. Okay? It is an eight-foot-long stick with with a metal spike on the end of it and an ice scraper on the other side, okay? So in the morning, when you need to get your bison moving, you poke them in the butt, and then you scrape the ice off your windshield. 
No, of course, it's not an ice scraper. But it looked like an ice scraper. What it was for is, you know, like they're plowing with oxen. And if the ox stops walking, you take your ox goad because it's eight foot long and you, boop, you poke him in the, in the booty. It's a booty poker, right? It gets it going again, right? And then if the dirt starts sticking to the plow, they stop the ox, they go over there, and they scrape off the dirt from the plow. That's what an ox goat is. And interestingly enough, this is the only time in this one verse in the entire Bible that ox goat is used. Now, goat is used for other things, but that actual phrase, ox goat, is only uh, mentioned in the Bible this one time. So that's what an ox goat is. Shamgar uses this ox goat to rescue Israel by defeating a 600-person army that's coming into Israel. God's like, I don't need no army. I got old Shamwell, or Shamwell. I got old Shamgar over here. See, God had been preparing him for that for as long as Shamgar had been alive. Because I don't think that Shamgar is walking through the Israeli countryside and goes, oh, there's 600 Philistines. And he runs down to the Home Depot, and out of everything he could get, he decides to get an ox goad. Okay? No, he'd been using one of those his entire life. That ox goad was probably so natural in his hands that he never even thought about it. And it was an extension of him. Unbeknownst to Shamgar and us, God is always preparing and using us for his good work. And you know what? Just like Shamgar, God is preparing you for your verse. Because you're going to have a verse. You might even have several verses. You might even have a chapter. I don't know. But God is always preparing his kids for his works of love. See, you have gifts from God that are so basic for you that you don't even know how God could use them. I know that for a fact because growing up, I could do a couple of things pretty well. I could tell a pretty good story sometimes. And I always kind of had a knack for making hard things to understand just a little bit easier. I never looked at those as gifts. I just thought it was just who I was. I didn't know that God would take those two seemingly innocuous things and make the largest independent cowboy ministry in the nation out of a story and making an, a little bit of a gift of making hard things to understand, make it a little bit easier to understand. You have gifts like that. But a lot of times we overlook what God is preparing in us because we want it to be big. I mean, I'm sure that this story might have been better off if Shamgard had a tank. That would have been a cool story, right? Not a cattle prod, all right? God is working in you. You know, we will never know the little rippers, <laughs> rippers, ripples. We will never know the little rippers, our good works, and faith sin through the line, through time. And you don't know the impact that you're having on other people. You think you just came to church today. What I see from my vantage point is the Holy Spirit working in a room full of people. And not the room full of people around you, the people that are sitting in the chair that you're sitting in, the person that is sitting in your chair. I can see him working through all of you at some point. Some of you are like, I, I just can't see that. I don't care. I don't care if you can see it or not, because I know God sees it. See, so you have untapped time, untapped talent, and untapped treasure that God could be using for his glory, and you know it. See, God is working in your life right now, and he's preparing you for your verse, your one verse. And you know what? You, you may feel like an obscure Bible character. You know you're not a David, you're not a Paul, you're not a John the Baptist, you're not a Noah or a Moses. You're just you. And that is one of God's greatest creations, is you. 
He knows the number of hairs on your head. He loved you before time began. And he's been working in you. And yeah, you don't feel it every day. But make no mistake about it. God is working in and through you in ways that you will never, ever get. Waiting on your verse. Your verse. If you want to get the most out of life, do the right thing. No matter what. It's the stuff on the inside that will make the biggest difference to you and through you. Not the physical appearance. And if you want to get the most out of life, know that God is going to use you too. You are not insignificant in the kingdom of God. You are not insignificant in the kingdom of God. If you didn't hear me the first time, let me say it again. You are not insignificant in the kingdom of God because when you gave your life to Christ, the Bible says that the heavenly host cheers and sings. You, not me. You. When you gave your life to God, when your name was written in the book of life, the angels themselves, the heavenly host, sang praises. You are not insignificant in the kingdom of God. You want to get the most out of life. Do the right thing. Do the God thing. Do it right. Focus on the inside and know that God is going to use you too. You know, I was pretty proud of myself. I was pretty proud of myself by the time the Cowboys all got there. And not a single one of the other six or seven Cowboys had a single head of cow because I had them all at the windmill. And I'm telling y'all, it was a sight to behold because I was like the ghost in the darkness. Y'all remember that movie with the lions, the ghost in the darkness, where they would just like appear out of seemingly nowhere? That's the kind of cowboy I am because I'd be like right here and I'd see some cattle starting to try to drift over there. So I'd lope around all the mesquite and I'd come out of the trees like a specter in the night, turn them back. I did this for like an hour. I started referring to myself in the third person as the ghost and the darkness. But that wonderful feeling that I had soon crashed to the ground in a ball of fire. And next week we'll start right there and I'll tell you why as we continue on on how to get the most out of life.